0: Astronomers believe that any signals we listen to from other civilizations within our own galaxy will arrive in one of two ways. The first one is intentionally broadcast signals that are designed to be heard from people who want to be found. And the second type are unintentional signals broadcast by a nascent civilization sent out as a result of their technology. But what are the chances that we'll hear anything? Listening for extraterrestrial signals on this episode of Space Junk Podcast. Welcome to Space Junk Podcast with Tony Darnell and Dustin Gibson. Hi everybody, welcome back. A little bit later on, I'm going to be talking with Dustin about APOS versus catadioptic optical tube assemblies. But first, I want to talk about listening for ET. Now, when you've been creating content for as long as I have, I've been doing this since 2006, you sort of store ideas in all kinds of really strange places. And a long time ago, I used this program called Evernote to store everything in. That was way back in the mid-aughts. And... I was looking through that account the other day and I found a whole bunch of ideas that I had set aside for making videos on. And this one has, it was a link. This one particular item was a link to a paper written back in 2007 that where astronomers had calculated the probability of us being able to hear anything uh, in the galaxy using a set of assumptions. And I'm going to talk about that paper here today. Uh, it's still relevant. It still makes it still all of the assumptions still apply. Uh, we know a little bit more about what exoplanets are within the range of our hearing, but other than that, all the analysis is still pretty much the same. So I thought we'd go through some of these uh, some of these topics or some of these points that are made in the paper because I think they're very interesting. So when listening out into the galaxy, what can we expect to hear? And what should we listen for first? We don't have infinite resources. We have to kind of pick and choose what we listen to. And since we don't know if there's anybody else out there, which is a big problem for a lot of people, including me, uh, I think that this issue of not having heard any obvious signals or seen any obvious artifacts out in the universe of civilizations is a bit problematic. But let's not go into it with those kind of assumptions. The question of where is everybody is a valid one. And it's one that we should discuss in another, in another podcast episode. But here, let's assume that there are signals to be heard. What are the likelihood of, our, of us hearing them? So we need to think a little bit about the nature of the signals themselves. And so since we only have ourselves as a data point, we haven't seen anybody else yet, what do we emit out into the universe? That's a valid question to ask. And what would we expect to see if somebody else was doing what we're doing? So uh, so astronomers think that the best place to listen is this place called the water hole. And it's this frequency range of the electromagnetic spectrum that goes from between the 21 centimeter line of hydrogen to the strongest hydroxyl line, which is water in the radio spectrum. And this is a range of about 1400 to 1720 megahertz on our radio dial. (laughs) So this is where most people think we should look. This is called the water hole. And there's a, and this is a gap in the part of the spectrum that we are emitting a lot of interference in. So we are looking here uh, because we can get out past a lot of the stuff that we're already emitting. Now, where, what is the source of a lot of our, of a lot of our, signals. Well, it's radio and television, as you could imagine. Cell phones and cell phone towers also do a lot of emitting things. And radar. It turns out radar is one of the most strongest signals that we uh, emanate. Um, So looking in this part of the spectrum makes a lot of sense, according to astronomers. So how strong is our stuff? How strong are the signals that we emit? Well, the strongest, like I said, by far is uh, coming from the radar uh, that we use. And Right now, the most powerful radar that I think we know about uh, from governments is by, is used by the U.S. ballistic missile defense system, and it puts out a, pow- a total power output of two billion with the b watts when it's in use, and it can go two orders of magnitude higher if you if you beam it if you tighten the beam a little bit. So that's the most powerful thing that we emit in the electromagnetic spectrum, and. As we all know, we're we're just kind of emitting these signals. We're not doing it with any specific intent to be found by anybody else in the galaxy. This is just a result of our technological development. So astronomers estimate that these signals that we're putting out, something analogous to this, could be heard by radio, radio telescopes far away. And how far away depends on the size of the antennas that you use. But here's the kicker. Here's the thing that I found very surprising, and I guess it makes sense if you think about it. We have been broadcasting in this part of the spectrum, in the radio part of the spectrum, for a little over 100 years now. We had radio stations and then television stations and radar during World War II. And then, of course, it got even stronger over time. And now we have this 2 billion watt system going out there. But we are now starting to go dark we're getting more efficient at broadcasting. So we don't need as much power as we used to have, as we used to need to go from, let's say radio stations or uh, television. And we're also switching to digital communication, which is highly directional when it's being beamed and it's becoming and it's replacing radio altogether when you use fiber optics and landlines. So if you think about this, we've only been broadcasting for about a hundred years or so and we're starting to not broadcast anymore and eventually we're going to go dark as our technology advances and we start doing it in other ways so astronomers make this assumption that civilizations broadcast in this frequency range for only about a hundred years which is an excruciatingly small time frame when you consider the scale of the universe these are reasonable assumptions but they are nonetheless assumptions there are lots of other things you could think up but we I think it makes sense to start with what we know, which is us and what we've done in our history. Okay, so we've been listening, and we've been there are have been SETI specific projects out there that have been designed to listen for these signals. The first one was the Phoenix project, and it ran for nearly ten years. It ran from ninety five to two thousand four. It observed eight hundred stars out to two hundred and forty light years from Earth. And it used the Arecibo, the Parks, and the Green Bank radio telescopes, and it you, but it looked in a frequency range of 1.2 to 3 gigahertz. So it was actually looking for these beacons, these intended signals from civilizations that wanted to be found, and it looked in that frequency range. The Beta Project, which came a little bit later, it used a 26-meter sorry, radio telescope, and it performed an all-sky, narrow-brand microwave search uh, for the, for also for extraterrestrial beacons in this waterhole region of the spectrum. And the reason they are looking for beacons is because these signals needed to be strong to be seen by these radio dishes. So that's where they were looking. These were SETI-specific searches that didn't find anything when they ended. And then, of course, there's the SETI project, which we've all heard about. Um, it was at first funded by NASA for a number of years. And now it's, now it's become a private nonprofit uh, that is funded primarily by, by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And uh, it consists of 42 dishes, which are mounted in Northern California, with the hope that they're going to go up to 300 more, add 300 more dishes to this array. Uh, it is also designed to look for beacons. Remember, there are differences in, in things that we can hear. There are these civilizations that want to be heard and are sending out very strong signals. And there are these incident, these incidental signals that we're, list, that we're eavesdropping on that civilizations may be emitting without intending to be found. So the first kind of signal is by definition stronger because beacons are meant and designed to be found. Eavesdropping, not so much. So SETI is more or less looking at uh, beacons or looking for beacons because mostly, again, because of its small size. It just isn't a really big array, uh, comparatively speaking. So it's targeting 250,000 stars, including all the stars with known exoplanets, uh, in this waterhole region looking for alien beacons. it's also, however, in parallel doing a deep blind survey where it is just looking at 20 square degrees of sky towards the galactic center in the constellation Sagittarius, and it's looking for also strong beacons from billions of stars in that direction. So that's what SETI is currently doing and looking at. It's, it's focusing on beacons in the, habit- um, the habitable zone. <laughs> I've been thinking about exoplanets too much. In the water hole. Uh, funny how water is always a, uh, a, a thing, uh, that we look for with, uh, other civilizations. Okay. Anyway. Okay. So those are the projects that are specifically designed for looking for signals from extraterrestrial intelligence and nothing else. They don't do anything more, but there are more powerful radio telescopes out there and they're being used by astronomers to do astronomy. These can capture signals that are much, much fainter and have the ability to listen for the eavesdropping kinds of signals. These are the unintended signals, not so much the beacons, but it could find stuff that isn't meant to be, or at least wasn't specifically designed to be found. And so the eavesdropping category is something we really haven't looked a lot into in terms of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. And we would, of course, use the data that the astronomers take to glean any insights of these, of these eavesdrop signals from. And there are these, the two biggest candidates right now, the two most powerful telescopes that we could use in this effort uh, are the LOFAR instrument, which stands for low-frequency radar, that's built in the Netherlands. And it could hear signals like the Earth military radar 160 light-years away. And this would, in, and so this would include a radius. Or if you look at the all of the stars in a volume uh, of that radius of 160 light years, that would include 100,000 stars and several possible rocky exoplanets, most notably Gliese five hundred and eighty-one C. So, if we use LOFAR and piggyback on their data, uh, we could find. Uh, things up we could maybe listen to and we could maybe detect an Ill, uh, an earth military style radar up to 160 light years away but there is another radio telescope currently being built it is the square kilometer array and it will be the most powerful radio telescope ever constructed and it would be able to see those earth's military style radar signals up to 300 light years away so we should be able to detect some of these signals using Equipment and technology we already have or that's being built right now. So let's sort of summarize for a second. We know what we should be looking for, what it might be looking for if we use ourselves as an example. We know what it would take to see those and from how far away we would be able to detect those signals using technology that we currently have. What's the likelihood of being able to hear anything? So we take these assumptions and with the equipment that we have, So these guys, they wrote this paper. They are, it was written in 2007. There's a link to this in the description box of the podcast if you want to look at it yourself. It was written by Duncan Forgan uh, of the University of Edinburgh and astronomer Robert Nickel at the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation in the UK. And what they did was they randomly generated about 500,000 alien civilizations based on current theories of planet formation. And they provided a rather optimistic guess as to how many would develop life. And then they assumed that each civilization broadcasts in radio for 100 years and that they can hear each other from up to 300 light years away. Okay, so these were all the consumptions and the constraints constraints put into this model. Now, when they ran their model, all communication in the galaxy disappeared. Because the, these constraints, especially using something like these, even if you use something like the square kilometer array, these are incredibly tight. You're looking at the waterhole. You're looking for only these civilizations can only do this for 100 years. And the reason that's so problematic is that civilizations that are separated by 300 light years would require at least twice that to establish a dialogue, right? 300 light years to send, years to send out a signal, 300 years to get a response, so to establish any kind, of, any kind of dialogue, you're looking at 600 years. So if you constrain the communications interval to only be 100 years at its maximum, then that basically removes any opportunity for actual communication. But right. that doesn't preclude detection. So it turns out that the probability of eavesdropping on an unintended signal with a square kilometer array is 1 in 10 million. Very, very remote, using all the numbers that I just told you about. So a more, and the authors of this paper suggest that a more fruitful strategy will be to target the searches, which is what SETI is currently doing with the Allen uh, Telescope Array. And we could do this with other things, but we can't do this by piggybacking on astronomy astronomy radio telescopes. So with targeted searches, we may never be able to hear leaked signals but we could still pick up a deliberate beacon from a civilization that wanted to announce its presence. So looking for beacons, which is what they're doing, a telescope dedicated to the search using all of the assumptions that these guys had put forth, the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California would improve the odds of hearing something uh, to one in 10,000. Which isn't zero. (laughs) And of course, it makes it all worth doing. Which is why the Allen Telescope Array is up there and doing what it's doing. It is targeting and looking for beacons. So I don't know. I thought all this was pretty interesting and I wanted to share it with you. The paper's a little dated, but not, not so much. The numbers still work, and all of it is all the assumptions I think are reasonable. We have a very small chance of hearing signals from other civilizations, which lends strength to the idea that. You know, this it makes sense because we've never heard anybody anything from anybody. So this question of where is everybody is still a valid one. We just couldn't, maybe haven't heard them yet. There hasn't been enough time. The stars haven't literally aligned in such a way that we could pick up these signals. We have a much less of a chance of eavesdropping on unintended unintended signals one in ten million versus intended signals of one in ten thousand, but. Again, that's, you know, what's the likelihood of another civilization putting out another beacon that they want to be heard? We have no idea how likely that is to occur. So if it is very, if we are very generous in a lot of our assumptions, then those numbers are one in 10,000 to hear a, a beacon. So it makes a lot of sense, I guess, that we haven't found anything yet. The chances are small. The telescopes needed are uh, need to be a lot greater in number, and we need to have more larger dedicated surveys uh, to be able to pick these up at all. The Allen Telescope Array could go as high as 300 dishes, which would help a lot. It would increase the radius at which we could see things. But for now, we are constrained quite a bit in our search. So, it's not putting the kibosh on there being other civilizations. There are other reasons why there may not be life in the universe or life in our galaxy, especially tech- intelligent life. But I'll get to that in a, in, another, in another podcast episode. I have a lot of opinions on that. If you've watched my streams, you know sort of what they are. But I'll get to that in this podcast over time. So what do you guys think? Does this make sense? Are these assumptions too generous? Are they too tight? let me know. Send me an email. SpaceJunkPodcast at DeepAstronomy.com. I've already been getting some emails. Thank you for those. Uh, And let me know what you think and ask any questions or give me ideas of future topics you'd like to see on this podcast. You're listening to Space Junk Podcast. Hey, Dustin, welcome back. You know, it's it's kind of funny the way we're doing this podcast now because uh, Dustin and I are getting several episodes recorded all at one time. And I actually haven't talked to Dustin in like a month. So <laughs> welcome back. It's good to see you again, my friend. How are you doing? It is.
1: It's, it's great to see. You You know, we used to do this every <laughs> single week. And then, you know, time just got away from us and we had a few that we missed. So we tried to change it up to make sure that, you know, the episodes weren't missed and this was the plan for, doing that. And plus just being a little more creative to keep it interesting. Yep. Um, and so, you know, we're a month into that now, but yeah, it's
0: been a month since we've hung out. And I don't know that I like that. I know. It's like weird, isn't it? It's like, you know, yeah. it's like we always had a, a good professional excuse for, for getting together. And now, <laughs> cause we're so busy, we end up, this is it. This is all we get. So we spent a lot of time chatting before we got started recording and now we're recording. So this topic, what, what, what I want to talk about now is the result of an email that I got from someone who wanted to know more about uh, catadioptric telescopes, in particular, Maxutos. but we're going to talk about a lot of different kinds here. Uh, so first of all, let me just say thank you for emailing me. Always do that. Podcast at DeepAstronomy.com. I sit there with hitting the refresh button constantly looking for your emails. So please send me feedback. Let me know what you think of these things. Okay, so... There are a lot of changes in amateur astronomy over the past, I don't know, decade. Well, there's always changes, but I mean, they've really gotten optical designs, have gotten quite sophisticated now and relatively inexpensive. And so what we thought we'd talk about here are the differences between apochromatic refractors and catadioptric telescopes. Now, a catadioptric telescope is a fancy word that just means it has both reflecting elements like mirrors in it, and it has refracting elements like lenses in it. It has both. A reflecting telescope just has mirrors, catadioptic has both, and an apochromatic refractor just has refracting elements in it. No secondary mirrors or any of that kind of stuff. So, Dustin, what, what would you say is just a So I gave a a difference between the two, but let's talk about apochromatic refractors first. Um, I think more than any other part of the field of amateur astronomy in optical tube design, these have gotten the most amazing. You want to talk a little bit about apochromatic refractors a little bit and and which ones you like?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, they're definitely the simplest design because they're not folded optics. There's no secondary mirror. The light just passes straight through the system. So it hits the objective, the, the front element, and, um, goes straight through without changing directions, right? And so very, very simple design. Generally, they don't take much maintenance or any front end effort at all. Um, and that's why we, we usually recommend, and you see a lot of recommendations for astrophotographers to start with refractors, usually APOs, um, because, you know, you don't want to get, uh, you don't want to run into problems, especially if it's something you've never done. You don't want to create a deeper learning curve than you have to. And so a lot of people start out with refractors just so they don't have to collimate. They don't have to align mirrors. They don't have to really learn that much about it. And the the images are phenomenal. They're, They're you know, some of the the best wide field images in the world generally come from apochromatic refractors. So something that I, I really love and it's a great place to start. And it doesn't take a ton of aperture with photography because you can do longer exposures to collect a lot of light and get really detailed images. But for starters and on and a lot of times, you know, people people generally come back to them even after going to larger telescopes. Um, you know, it's it's really a a pretty awesome way to do the hobby is just a, a nice refractor that you can count on to work every time because it's essentially just a big camera lens is all it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, in the past refractors, the big, the big drawback with them, uh, has been because they all use lenses, the glasses them the glass themselves has to be ultra high quality. No, no flaws in them because it uses the entire surface which meant that they're expensive just to buy a blank of this stuff uh, before you even started grinding it into a lens. But it was also difficult in in previous production methods to make these anything other than a really long focal length. So you had like back in the day, Pentax was a big was a big refractor maker. I don't know if they still make them now, but but they they were really nice telescopes, but they were F7, right? Very long, very long focal length, narrow field of view. Nowadays, they've gotten this to the point where they can make them really short focal lengths now, can't they? And still be corrected for, color, for, for spherical aberration and, and color.
1: Yeah, and that's that's the key, right? Because there's a couple different types of refractors and we can do the quick 30-second uh, 30 elevator expl- explanation here of refractors. But yeah, let's you'll do see that. a couple different types when you go onto a site like GoPT and start looking for you know your first refractor. And the first thing you're going to see is words like doublet or triplet, which what we're talking about when we say APA, we're talking about triplets. And the easiest way to think about it is fully color correcting all of the colors. So a doublet can correct two of the three colors. A triplet will correct all three, which means you won't have purple fringing around really bright objects like the moon. No matter how wonderful a doublet is, it's always going to have some color fringing. And that's just, um, that's just, you can't get around physics. It's just part of it. Um, and each a one of those has its correct own lens colors.
0: element, too, I should point out. So each color correction. So a triplet is three lenses. Three lenses, correct. Right. Yeah, three lenses. But that does not mean that it's correcting for
1: flatness, the flatness of an image. And, you know, unlike the human eye, the a sensor is a flat surface. And so it needs to flatten the image so that across the entire sensor you don't have field curvature. Everything is flat and it looks like it was made to go across that image and the stars can be pinpoint across the whole thing. So generally what happens is it does take more than three elements to get that perfect. And so you see a lot of the, what we call astrographs, telescopes designed specifically for astrophotography. They're not just triplets, they're triplets with a corrective element added to it or something that's already built into the tube. So they might be four or five elements in the tube or the three elements of the triplet. And then somebody adds on the back of it, something called a flattener or a reducer flattener. But yeah, the optics have gotten so incredible for astrographs that like you were saying, most of the the best telescopes in the past were F8 or F7. And now you've got phenomenal astrographs that are in the F3 range or F3.8. You know, F5 is very common, which is much, much faster. It means your exposure times can be a lot shorter And on top of that, you get a wider field of view, which you really get rewarded with by the new camera technology that's out these ultra high resolution cameras. The idea being, if you shoot wide, you eliminate a lot of the issues that come up with astrophotography and longer exposures. Things as simple as the wind blowing or having a plane have enough time to fly through your image and leave a streak or things can just go wrong when you're doing really long exposures. Um, So shooting wide means that you're not gonna run into a lot of the issues where you see you know, the tracking error in your mount as significantly or any of that stuff. And so shooting wide and then cropping into your target is possible because the cameras have gotten so good. So um, it's definitely the path, it's the trend that we've seen the most with astrophotographers is buying relatively small telescopes to get, um, you know, like the Radian 61, for instance, which is currently sold out. So it's not much of a plug, but, um, <laughs> you know. Well, it, it is uh, a statement it became, of how good it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it became one of the best-selling telescopes on Earth for that reason is just that, like, you can shoot wide and crop, and these very small telescopes give you a very wide field so you can see the big targets, like... Andromeda, or you can see the big nebulae, you know, the North America or Pelican, you know, the, these big targets, or even people that just want to shoot an entire constellation with, you know, big sensors and stitching um, mosaics together, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, a small telescope does not mean small quality at all. You can get APODs, NASA APOD awards with these very small telescopes and people do it all the time, but it's generally with refractors that people are doing that.
0: And that, of course, makes them very portable because they are smaller. The tube designs you can you can basically fit them in a in a sort of a duffel bag looking situation and carry them with you. They're lightweight. Some of them have carbon fiber tubes, uh, so they're all you know they're all very portable. But what about durability how uh, how how durable are they as far as you know transporting them everywhere?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I would say a couple of things. One, you're going to see a lot of different um, you know marketing kind of pitches here for, for scopes. And carbon fiber is something that's really important on open tube systems like reflectors, you know, things like like a, an AG optic or a plane wave or some of these big systems. You see it a lot with Officina Stellare and and these really high-end telescopes. And it goes on and on. I don't mean to just name a few, but it goes on and on. Um, with closed tube systems, meaning a tube that has an element in the front and the back and the air in between is trapped, you're not going to really get the benefit of carbon t- carbon fiber being thermally stable um because it, the air is not going to reach the ambient temperature very easily in a closed system so generally if it's a carbon fiber tube on a refractor it's mostly just because it looks awesome and it does look awesome it's not going to hurt you but um it, you're not going to get the benefits that you might from a system that's truly you know got quartz mirrors and things that are more thermally stable to um you know to hold their focus throughout temperature fluctuations outside, um, as well like an open tube system. You know things like the plane waves. So um, just just a quick note there that you know it's not important on a refractor that you go with a carbon fiber tube at all. No,
0: I just mentioned it because I think the uh, uh, they're lighter they're lighter weight and and can take sure. a little bit more. Of, yeah, and you know, they look awesome. They don't get dented <laughs> as much as say an aluminum right. tube or whatever. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. They look awesome, but.
1: But if you have an uh, an Apo refractor and you're denting it, then you know we need to have a discussion anyway.
0: <laughs> well, you never know. You're traveling on a plane and you get you know you're forced to check it for whatever reason. You never know. I sure. Mean, so that's the reason I'm I'm I bring that up. But yeah. So 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 apples have, have gotten shorter in focal length and uh uh their, their color correction and their. Uh, And their chromatic aberration, spherical aberration correction has always been really, really good, but they tend to be quite pricey, don't they? So give us a couple of recommendations on on some good appos that maybe won't break the bank if there is such a thing. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different brands and I'm always, I'm always hesitant. I I, I know, I know Dustin, let me just give a disclaimer here. Just because Dustin is talking about a brand (laughs) doesn't mean that the ones he doesn't mention are, are, are not worth buying. Nothing at OPT, (laughs) uh, is crap. Okay. You're going to get good stuff from OPT, but one of the values of this podcast, I'm trying to give the listener. some places to start. There are other brands, and if he doesn't mention it, it doesn't mean that brand is no good. We could, you could email me, and I'll find out specifically about that brand for you. So let me just give you that disclaimer, okay? So please, Dustin, I hope you feel sure. more comfortable now talking yeah, about yeah. brands. And well, not that's mentioning the thing; others. it always
1: sounds like okay, the things that you name are great, and the things that you don't name must be garbage, and that's, that's just right. simply not true. I, I can only go off of what I see, the majority of people um, purchasing at the moment, and there are a lot of things that go into that right now. More than anything, um, one of the things that dictates what people are buying is just inventory, because what the entire world is suffering, <laughs> yeah, supply chain issues and has been for several months. So generally, what I see is whatever comes in. You know, we might get a hundred of something in, and it's gone in thirty seconds because people are just they want a refractor, and those refractors are so comparable. I mean, glass has gotten so good. Over the last 10 years that just about anything that's an apochromatic refractor from whatever brand you get is going to be a great telescope without a doubt. I don't know of any right now that I can say, oh, that's just a really bad telescope or a bad design. They've gotten very good. Some have small advantages. Um, and I think that's what made the, the Radiant so popular is, you know, some of the hardware that came with it just really eliminated things like flexure and issues that can come up, you know, with focus or or those sorts of things. But the brands that still end up remaining um, at the top of sales list are things like Takahashi. When people can find Takahashi, they, they immediately jump on it because it is, it's not the cheapest telescope. In fact, it's one of the more expensive telescopes. <laughs> yeah, that's high end. It's, it's a very high end telescope, but it's something that once people have it, they buy it for life. It's like that camera lens is something that people are going to have forever because there's never going to be a time that people see something like a Ta- Takahashi FSQ 106 and say anything other than world class. I mean, it's proven itself time and time again, and probably has more apods than any other telescope in existence would be my guess. Um, but they're they're you know they're in short supply, and um, you know the telescopes that are more common, I would say, are. Things like William Optics. I mean, he has done such an incredible job. William is, is a great, great guy, but also just done an incredible job with innovation. And really, you know, we, we share a mission in simplifying the hobby for people. And he really thinks through the details of his telescopes with things like a place to mount, you know, something as simple as a place to, to carry it, a handle or a place to mount um, a guide scope that is going to be rigid and it's not gonna, you know, produce a lot of extra flexure and, and good hardware and things like that. Um, so I think that those are those are some of the best-selling telescopes and for a reason, something like the Red Cat became extremely, extremely popular. Now there's a new one. Um, the other APOs that are produced there, very popular for astrophotography. The RADIAN, like I said, I mean, that that telescope, if they are ever, you know, when they are available, I said, you know, people jump on them very quickly But because they're they're a telescope, and imaging telescope for under $1,000, the Radiant 61, like I said, the second they they arrive, they generally sell out. Um, And so we do have more on order, but it just takes time to get them. And then, um, let's see, Skywatcher makes a great product, very, very high value. For this, and I would say Explore Scientific fits in there as well. You know, Explore Scientific has big telescopes too for people that want to get a lot of bang for the buck. You know, these telescopes are a little bit different in that they're not really designed for full frame imaging, which is what a lot of people are doing with the super high res sensors like the ZWO 6200. The image circles are a little bit smaller, so they can't handle the bigger sensors all the way to the edges. What does but that mean? You do you, get,
0: what does that mean? Do you get like vignetting or something? What do
1: you, yeah, you'll get vignetting or the stars just won't look good in the corners. They're just not designed to handle sensors okay. that big. Okay. So when you take a picture, you look on the outside edges of it, and the stars are just, they're not going to look pinpoint like they do in the center. They'll look significantly better in some parts of the image than they do in others. Okay. But that only happens on the, the largest sensors, the full frame and above. Whereas, you know, just about all these APOs can handle crop sensors like APS-C or smaller. Um, but for value for, for what you get for the dollar, I mean, they make incredible telescopes. Um, okay. and so I think those are great options. And I've seen some, some incredible work done with them in, in the explore scientific specifically, people are doing a lot of solar work using, um, the Quark and, you know, energy rejection filters in the front of the telescope, you know, even with, um, uh, a non-APO telescope for a lot less money. So, I would say that, you know, all of those telescopes I'm mentioning here, these are all telescopes that you can do incredible astrophotography with. The important thing is looking at really what are you going to try to do? Are you going to try to go, you know, are you really going to try to stay wide field? Do you want more reach? Because then you have to start thinking about focal length, how how much magnification it can provide um, and how big of a sensor are you trying to use? Do you really want the maximum resolution if you're going to go with one of those big sensors or you think you might later? then it's important to consider telescopes that can handle larger sensors on the front end so that you're not trapped later on as you try to upgrade and you realize that, you know, then the telescope becomes a limiting factor. So subtle differences on a lot of them, but those differences can matter in the end as you start progressing through the hobby and you're really trying to push your limits. You always want yourself to be the limiting factor, not your equipment.
0: Right. Yeah. And I guess the specific recommendation here, because things are so tight uh, supply chain wise, is whatever you can find is probably get, just get that because that's probably going to be good. All of the brands out there, uh, uh, like I said, there's, I don't know if there's really a bad APO out there. So,
1: um, well, you've, you've got a couple problems. And I know that you've seen this, Tony, but the the hobby right now is not only more popular than it's ever been, the growth in it has been exponential over the last two years. And so there are more people doing this, sharing this. You see posts everywhere you go uh, all the time. Now on astrophotography, I mean, you've got kids taking some of the best images in the world and sharing it all over social media. And it just gets everybody, it's a a positive feedback loop that just feeds the community because it's exciting to see that. And then it makes everyone else that I see that and I wanna push myself to do better. And then other people see mine and then they wanna take pictures and, and on and on. And the cycle continues.
0: And the, the hobby has just grown tremendously because of social media. <laughs> I was reading and- Al Jazeera the other day, and I actually saw Astrobin uh, getting uh, listed as a source for that article. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, these guys! Not only has Astrobin as a as a website really grown, but it's the hobby. It just shows the you know there was an article about amateurs and what and the kinds of things that they are." Imaging And this was on Al Jazeera. So yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's uh, definitely exploding. Okay. I, we're, we spent a lot of time on APOs and I want to move now to uh, catadioptric systems. Sure. Um, these are reflector refractor combinations. Okay. And they're, they, they, they are actually quite sophisticated optical systems one of the first ones i ever heard about was the celestron 8 that's a catadioptric system it's got a spherical mirror uh it's a it's a Cassegrain, and it the it has a secondary mirror that that uh, is sitting on the corrector plate but it's the corrector plate that made that telescope possible it was a meniscus lens that corrected for spherical aberration and it's The telescope, I feel like, that put Celestron on on the map back in the 70s. They were the ones who... Uh, offered this first, it had the advantages of a short tube, a uh, large aperture, and it was just um, an amazing telescope. Um, and we we'll, we could talk about that in a separate episode. But um, but there's also other kinds of designs. There's the Maxutov telescope, uh, sure. which which is extremely popular. It has a meniscus lens on the front, uh, a spherical lens, but it's also got the secondary silvered on to the back of the corrector plate. So there's no very
1: small secondary. Yeah. And it's small. So it's not a large central obstruction
0: and it it, did alignment. Isn't uh, a problem with those. You don't have to sit there and tweak Allen screws to get the, the, the the thing, the optical system lined up. So that's good. And then there are Ritchie Crichton uh, telescopes as well. So um, what are, what are, what are some advantages of all these different kinds? uh, Sure.
1: Yeah, and so RCs are super popular, but those are purely reflective. They don't have a corrector plate, uh, you know, or a corrector plate or a um, a set of elements in the back to correct. You would have to get a separate corrector for those, and then they become corrected RCs, um, which is very similar to like CDKs, except CDKs use spherical uh, secondary mirrors. Um, so it's oh, a so they're not actually
0: design. even a catadioptric system. Why am no, I even RCs are, them
1: up? Are reflective.
0: Okay, so Yeah. us reflect. about those. For, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. I don't know why I thought that was one of the... the, the <laughs> because
1: every, The reason is because everybody that uses them, for the most part, puts a corrector on them in okay. the back anyway, so then they have refract, uh, refractive elements. Okay. But anyway... Um, so
0: never mind yeah, our so,
1: so if we're going... Let's start with the first ones that you mentioned. You know, we're talking about three different things, and so let me just clarify right in the beginning of this part that I do think that each design is the best at something. So refractors, in my opinion, are the best at wide field imaging. You're not going to produce the same wide field images using other things that were designed for something else and then going after wide field images with it. Um, I think reflective systems and, um, you know, I would even say corrective reflective systems are the best at long focal length imaging. You can do it with refractors, but it's just I haven't seen the results that I've seen with refractors with, you know, it's always better with a, a big telescope, something like the plane wave that I mentioned. I mean, that's what I use personally, is a big telescope to go after really deep targets or really try to, you know, get high magnification on a small portion of a large target. Um, and so generally that's where those win. Where I think things like the, um, the Edge HDs and, you know, this the Celestron, the Mead scopes, those things win is that they are the most versatile telescopes out there, specifically the Edge HDs. Um, I mean, first off, how innovative was it when they came out with a portable telescope with that much focal length? I If you wanted to have 2000 millimeters of focal length before, a refractor would have been longer than your car. You know, so you wouldn't have been able to carry it around. So those folded optics were super innovative and incredibly um, beneficial to the hobby. It's what made the hobby explode. And so I think, it's really um, it's a great design, but what it really is is a jack of all trades. And Edge HD can be done for planetary from the back of the scope, native um, at f I don't know it off the top of my head f ten or f eleven, whichever it is. It can be reduced to f seven to do good um, you know long exposure uh, deep space stuff like galaxies, and then it can even you can even remove the secondary on those and shoot from the front of the telescope at prime focus which then makes it a wide field instrument um, and you know shoots super fast. So as far as versatility goes, you can do every type of photography with these things and do visual with them. So what it is best at is not the type of images it gets from any one orientation. It's not going to beat a plane wave at long focal length. It's not going to be refractor from prime focus for image quality. But what it can do is it can do everything and the other scopes can't say that.
0: So So, it's sort of a so it's sort of a jack of all trades. It's a jack of Uh, all trades, absolutely. Okay, and for the
1: for a lot of people, that makes a ton of sense because they want to do everything and they want to take it to a star party and show it off visually. You know, let people look through it and then take it home and image from the front of the telescope. And that's something that it allows you to do is just whatever you want to do when you want to do it. Those scopes are extremely versatile. They're not going to beat the others on image quality from, you know, any one orientation, but they will allow you to do more things if that's important to you. If all you're after is image quality, then, you know, there are other options that I think, you know, you probably go down first to try to get the best possible images. Um, but if versatility is what's important, I mean, it's the re- there's a reason they're so popular.
0: Well, what I like about Maxitovs in particular is their size, right? I mean, these are very portable optical tubes and uh, they're generally, you know, just a, a foot or two uh, long and you can put them in, you know, all kinds of uh, carrying cases and carry them around, but they can be used as spotting scopes and on, uh, you know, for the daylight and everything yeah. else. So I like, I like Maxitovs a lot because of that and their durability, right? I mean, sure. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm giving away some stuff when I say that I, you know, I care about dents because (laughs) I tend to dent my telescopes for reasons that I don't tend to, but it's what I like about Maxutovs is they could take a lot of abuse and I don't have to realign them all the time. Um, as a visual person, that, that, that's pretty nice. It is pretty long focal length though, for someone who's just trying to do visual work all the time.
1: And with visual, it's tough to beat some of the other designs like Dobsonians, which I know you have a half Mm -hmm. meter Dobsonian. It's tough to beat. The bang for the buck of a Dobsonian and the right. simplicity—just you know, left, right, up, down—point it where you want to, where you want to see it, and you are going to see that in high magnification. So Dobbs are incredible for that reason, and plus, Newtonians, which a Dobsonian is, has a very small secondary mirror um, again, which gives you the best possible contrast in your images. So, um, yeah, I think I think that there is a lot of benefit for those visually, but Dobsonians are not a great option for uh, imaging.
0: Yeah. And Schmidt-Casts tend to have a pretty honking big uh, secondary, don't they? Schmidt Yes, it is a big
1: secondary. Most imaging reflectors do have large secondaries. People are generally surprised to see that they might have like a 50% obstruction as the secondary. (laughs) Um, It's not anything to be alarmed by. It's common. And, uh, you know, producing those big images out of the back of the telescope to match for big sensors, you've got to have that. So, um, it's super common, and just about all of the professional-level designs have that.
0: Do these catadoptic scopes, they tend to cost less than a, than a comparable APO, aperture-wise?
1: Uh, APOs are, they are certainly the most expensive per inch of aperture, yes, significantly mm-hmm. so. Um, okay. you know, you, you're going to pay as much for a 4-inch imaging APO, generally, as you would for a much, much larger reflector reflectors are, you know, less expensive to produce. And um, just in general, mirrors are less expensive to produce for the same aperture than than, uh, refractive lenses are, especially when the lenses have to be polished to that level of perfection. So yes, the, um, you know, when I first got into the hobby, I used to hear the term or I'd see the term on cloudy nights and things like that. And at star parties, people would say like, oh, refractor snobs, you know, and it's like, well, people fall in <laughs> love with their refractors for a reason, but yes, there's also a pride of ownership for, for a lot of people in their Apos because they are something that's expensive. It's not they're not inexpensive telescopes, but they're something that lasts forever. And so people buy them as long term investments in the hobby.
0: Yeah, and i but, you know, catadioptric or I keep using that term, but you know, like these Maxutov telescopes, one of the very first ones I ever Saw was back in the seventies and was under the, the name of Questar. And back then we had Questar snobs and this was an eight thousand dollar, uh, telescope. Tiny telescope was, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, that was back in, back in dinosaur times. So, so, you know, these were expensive <laughs> even then. So <laughs> refractors, I'm sorry, reflectors can get quite expensive as well, but you know, yeah. everybody's a snob about everything. Everybody thinks they know everything else. I'm a, you know what I am? I'm an astro scan 2001 snob. That cost me two hundred and sixty dollars.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the telescopes that I am the biggest fan <laughs> of are not the you know the million dollar telescopes. It's the ones that are producing really really great images at a very very low cost. Yeah, that's the direction I want to see things go. Is how do we make it more accessible all the time? And there are a lot of companies doing that. Um, and these small refractors that have come in, you know, under a thousand dollars now. I feel like I've, I've done that more than anything else because people are taking NASA APODs with a telescope that's under $1,000. That's where it should be, is how do we make it more accessible? And then from there, if people want to explore, you know, deeper levels of the hobby, which they always do, always, because, I mean, once you, and we've, we've talked about this a million times, once you, you get into this, it gets in your blood and you never get it out because this exploration is the best hobby on earth. But um, having a place to start, that can make you immediately successful in the hobby, I think is the most important advancements that's happening right now
0: are those telescopes being produced. Excellent. Okay, thank you, Dustin. We're going to leave it there. APOs versus Canada uh, versus Maxutals versus SpiritCasts versus RCs with corrector plates. (laughs) All of that. Uh, We hope this helps you uh, look into these telescopes a little bit more and uh, help you make your, your decisions on yours. This is Space Junk Podcast. Okay, everybody, it's time now for listener questions. <laughs> I've been getting emails. So I got another email from Paul, and this is about the black hole episode again. Paul's been thinking hard about black holes. I, 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 this always happens. Whenever you talk about black holes, you get all these questions. So this email comes from Paul again, and he says, hi, Tony, after listening to the latest episode, I have another tricky black hole question for you. I'm wondering what happens if you orbit a black hole extremely close to the event horizon, like less than a meter, and then reach out and touch it. There are all kinds of reasons, like tidal forces, radiation, etc., why this probably isn't possible, but hypothetically, I'm trying to understand what would happen. My understanding is that anything that goes past the event horizon can't come back, so would it suck the rest of you into the black hole, or would your hand just get cut off clean? If the latter, then that would be a cool, though impractical, method of ultra-precise manufacturing. Also, are black holes and their event horizons perfectly circular? Okay, there's a lot here, Paul. A lot. And the thing about it is you can't just ignore things like tidal forces and radiation as you approach a black hole. But I think I get the spirit of your question. You're not going to get anywhere near a black hole's event horizon without being spaghettified well in advance of the of the event horizon. So, but let's say that that doesn't happen. Let's say that you can get close to a black hole without spaghettification happening to you. These are the. This is the idea that as you get closer, you get ripped in half, and then those halves get ripped in half, and then none, 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 until finally all you're left with is a bunch of subatomic particles streaming into an accretion disk of a black hole. But let's say that doesn't happen. You can get to within a meter of the event horizon itself. Uh, what would happen if you reached out and touched it? Well, I don't know exactly but let's reason through this for a minute. We know from Stephen Hawking that black holes radiate and they radiate by this method of particle antiparticle annihilation, right? Very close to an event horizon. We know that, or but through Stephen Hawking, he knows, I don't claim to know, but people who study this stuff do say that at the surface of a, an event horizon, Particle antiparticle pairs that are created nearby end up getting kind of sucked. One gets one of the one of the one of them gets gets sucked in, the other doesn't, and and gets flung out into space. So that's Hawking radiation. And it suggests to me that if that is the way these particle antiparticles uh, creations and then being ripped apart happens. This is happening in something called virtual, um, uh, vacuum energy, where these, these are, just spontaneously created these particle antiparticle pairs. Uh, and then they are immediately uh, annihilated minus a black hole. Uh, but if a black hole is there, then one of the particles makes it away. And that's the very, uh, naive version of Hawking radiation. If, That tells me that there is a very sharp, very well-defined edge to the event horizon because these particle antiparticle pairs are happening on order of very tiny, very tiny distances on order of the plank length, maybe small, maybe, you know, just above that. So that's 10 to the minus 30, I think, uh, meters. So this would imply a sharp surface. So if you could get close without being ripped up, which you can't, but if you could and you reach out and you touch it, I would imagine that your hand would be very cleanly and nicely severed. Could you use this for any kind of manufacturing? No, because you can't get close to one without tidal forces. So this is a thought experiment minus all the physics. And if you could just get up there close to a, an event horizon, this is what you would see. Now, onto your final question of Are black holes and their event horizons perfectly circular? I think they are. What changes is whether or not a black hole is spinning or not. Remember, I told you one of the three characteristics of a black hole is the fact that it can spin. The other one is its size and its um, uh, whether or not it has a charge. If it's spinning then it creates a torus around of space-time instead of just a well, uh, just a, a deep well that we see in all the little pictures of black holes. And that has the effect of taking light that would be on the other side of a black hole, spinning it around to the front, and gravitationally lensing it so that you can see things directly behind a black hole. However, the event horizon itself is still spherical. And it's outlined by the math of the uh, Schwarzschild radius. So I hope that helps. It's an interesting thought experiment, although incredibly impractical. (laughs) But I do thank you for sending me the email. And I would like for you guys to do something similar. Please email me. Let me know what you want to talk about and I'll include it in the podcast because it's fun. Okay, guys. Well, that's it for this episode. I want to thank you all so very much for downloading, listening, and paying attention to this humble little podcast. Please spread the word. Help us grow. Thank you for taking time out of your day uh, to listen to what I had to say and what Dustin also had to say. So on behalf of my good friend, Dustin Gibson, thank you all again for listening. And as always, keep looking up.